So next month is the 16th anniversary of our church, and over those 16 years, uh, the members of this congregation, the visitors, those watching online, have heard a considerable number of J.R.R. Tolkien quotes and illustrations. And uh, full confession, you know, one of my criticisms of some megachurch pastors is they, they want to show a clip of Braveheart, so they come up with a sermon to fit the clip. Okay? It's all kind of backwards, right? They mine the Bible for quotes. But every now and then, I've got a really great Tolkien uh, quote, and I kind of want to find a verse that fits with that. That's not the case today. Because one of the things we know from uh, Lord of the Rings and Tolkien and his writers in general is he took his lessons from Scripture. And uh, the great battles of Middle Earth are actually based upon, in many ways, the return of Jesus Christ and the great battles that we've experienced uh, since the fall of good and evil. And, of course, today is no exception to that as we look about at the Antichrist uh, right prior to the return of Jesus Christ. We are looking at 2 Thessalonians, all of chapter 2, and we're, uh, there's so much content here, we've broken it down probably to four different sermons here. And last week, we looked at the fact that the day of the Lord is going to be preceded by some signs. The Thessalonians were concerned that they had been left behind, that somehow people had said uh, probably some false letters from Paul came and said uh, that the, the Lord has already returned, it's too late, and of course, that would have an effect on your faith and upon your morality. But Paul says, no, that's not the case. One of the first signs that we learned about last Sunday was that an apostasy must come first. Uh, but then right connected to that is the reign of the man of lawlessness. Again, this was not lost on Tolkien. The great Lord Sauron, the great evil demonic demon, uh, Satan type uh, person was assisted uh, by, the, by the Nazgul, the ring race, was assisted by the mouth of Sauron, the false prophets, uh, and they did terrible, terrible things. And in mockery of good, the evil Lord came up with substitutes uh, that would perform evil. And that is what we're going to see as we look at this passage of the Antichrist today so that we can know uh, what the signs might be and that we can take encouragement and heart that he will be defeated by the breath of the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do look at these things, these great mysteries that have been a challenge to commentators, early church fathers, and everybody in between. We pray, Lord God, that you would show us truth and help us to hold these truths with a sense of humility trying to seek to understand what they mean, but also recognizing that we could just be wrong. We're not quite sure because we are having to kind of eavesdrop in the middle of a conversation between the Apostle Paul and the Thessalonian church, and we don't exactly know what the topics are there. But there's enough here for us to know truth, for us to know that eventually wickedness and evil will fail and that you will prevail. And as your children, we bless you for that. So encourage us, challenge us, and, uh, and help us to go deep with you as we look at these passages of Scripture this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we want to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And I will read up to, pay, uh, to verse uh, 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 12 here this morning. But we're only going to look at uh, some of the passages, uh, uh, probably verses... Uh, uh, where, let me look at this. Verses uh, 5 through 7. Maybe four. <laughs> Let's go. go. Uh, 
God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when that lawless one will be revealed from the Lord, uh, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is the one whose coming is in accord to the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged and did not believe in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So we're going to pick back up on this theme here uh, early on where the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, there's parallel passages that help us to fill in some of the blanks that Paul's left us in the Thessalonian letters. Remember, uh, again, one of the issues here is that Paul taught very deeply about this principle while he was in Thessalonica. He had to leave suddenly, and, but so he's, in some ways, he's just reminding them about some of the things he has already taught them. Well, we, we are not privy to some of that teaching, but he would have taught many of the things that we find throughout Holy Scripture, in particular, Daniel's chapter 7 and 8 and chapter 11, Revelation 13 through 17 had not been written yet, but a lot of that came from Old Testament allusions as well. But he speaks here about this man of lawlessness, that idea of being without law. This person is an open defiance against God's law. So you think about the billions of the godless, evil people that have lived on the earth and are living on the earth now. He surpasses them all to the point where he is literally known as one who is lawless and he doesn't care. He wears it as a badge of honor. Uh, uh, Satan has energized this particular person. Uh, to, to, to rule over the earth or have great influence over the earth and in such a way as to just to destroy the very moral fabric of our culture. He may be perhaps referred to as Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh and Meshech and Tubal in Ezekiel chapter 38, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8, the prince who will come in Daniel chapter 9. He is the beast of Revelation chapter 11, 13, 14, and 19. Uh, and he is known here as also the man of lawlessness, but also the son of destruction. He is the Antichrist. That idea of Antichrist, of course, uh, is written in extensively in 1 John from the Apostle John. The idea of Antichrist is a compound word where it means he's against or in the place of Christ. So he is the false Christ, the Antichrist, those who is opposed. So all the good that Jesus Christ has brought to the world, all the good that Jesus Christ has brought to you, 
he seeks to undo through profound evil. He is a man of lawlessness and also called the son of destruction. Of course, son of is a Hebrewism that sort of uh, uh, identifies someone in, uh, based on their characteristics. The only other person that has this title is Judas, the son of perdition. Uh, he is a man. He's not an impersonal force of evil. Most people don't believe in a personal devil. They just believe that there is evil out there. That's pretty apparent, right? Uh, but, they, they, but he is actually an individual. He is the Antichrist and demonstrates this fact by his unholy actions. Notice what he does. He opposes and exalts himself before every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So he's in opposition of everything you stand for. He's in opposition of everything this church stands for. He's in opposition of, of everything that good people for centuries have stood for. It's a pretty terrifying character, isn't he? It's very sobering looking at these passages, even though we don't completely understand them. Uh, Daniel uh, talks about his, his rebellion, uh, how he's going to uh, place himself in the Holy of Holies. Uh, that uh, it's a transgression that makes things desolate. Uh, and uh, Daniel summarizes in chapter 11 th these, this thought. Then the king will do as he pleases, talking about the Antichrist, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every other god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decree will be done. Now, there have been fulfillments... Uh, shadows and types of this kind of person uh, in the past, have there not? Even some within even our own lifetime. But a, particularly this idea of desecrating the temple, that happened, of course, with Antiochus Epiphanes, as we discussed last week. It also happened uh, uh, with uh, some of the, two of the, uh, the Roman leaders as well who desecrated the temple, uh, made, uh, made sacrifices to false pagans, uh, pagan gods and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's been done before, but it's going to come at the final time, at the end, in, in a way that's much greater, much more evil, much more dark than what we have seen in the past. But we can learn from some of these things in the past. Uh, Leon Moore says this, the last and supreme embodiment of evil, one will make his appearance, uh, but only in the last time. So the good news is when he comes, evil will be Marked, It will be coming to an end. He is the final fulfillment, the last full measure of evil uh, as we have known it on this earth. So he makes a seat in the temple of God. Uh, the, he's not content with just rebellion and destruction, but he demands worship. And how many little, how many emperors have there been in the past? How many kings have there been in the past? How many, how many, the, the, the North Korean president and the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, emperors all desire to be worshipped uh, as gods. And of course, he is doing the same thing. Ezekiel describes him as the king of Tyre. Ezekiel says this in chapter 28, son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am God. I sit in the seat of gods and in the heart of the seats. Yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Now, this idea of sitting in the temple might cause some confusion. And, of course, this is one of the key features of dispensationalism. They insist that the temple must be uh, rebuilt and that, that, and that God will, uh, Christ will rule from that physical temple. But in Paul's day, the temple didn't have this meaning anymore. Uh, if you look at the whole book of Hebrews, that whole sacrificial system, the whole reason for the temple, the presence of God and all these things, had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks of the temple... 
He's actually speaking of this. He's speaking of the church of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's definition of a, of a temple. And that also fits with this idea of apostasy, that this, this world leader, this great antichrist, this evil of evil, this lawless one, will have control over the, the visible church uh, itself here. Uh, and he will seek to g- receive the worship that the church should be giving towards Christ. And again, we've seen that, haven't we? The church has already experienced apostasy after apostasy. Uh, it's remarkable. I had one of our, our former graduates came back and was listening. Uh, came to the service last Sunday, and uh, I had listened in on a church known for its liberalism, uh, and she said it was so vacuous. There was nothing to it. There was not a single sense of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, was, it was all run by feminists. Uh, it was all political agenda. Uh, there, it was all about go out and be a better person. There was no depth to it at all. This, this, is, this has been happening for some time, but it's going to happen in a militant way at some point in time. Now, again, take courage because if you are truly a believer, you will not fall for this. If you are born again, you are possessor of the Holy Spirit, you are not going to fall in this apostasy that's to come. You will not bow your knee uh, to this great evil. And we have examples of that in the past, too, where the faithful uh, were willing to be martyred to keep from false, uh, to avoiding uh, false worship here. But he displays himself as being God. John Stott says this, The coming of Antichrist will be such a clever parody of the coming of Christ that many will be taken in by his satanic deception. John goes on in 1 John uh, 2, Children, it's the last hour, and just as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And from this we know that it is the last hour. But we have a challenge from Jesus when he speaks to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3. I am coming, so hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Again, one of the nice things about Scripture is they're telling, you, telling us what's going to happen so that we're not surprised when it does happen. Of course, you had the, going back to Daniel, you had the great vision of the, the great statue, the, the beast that, uh, that symbolized the four great empires of ancient history, the winged lion for Babylon, the bear for Mesopotamia, uh, the four-winged leopard of Greece, the ten-horned beast uh, from the Roman Empire. But then one like a son of man comes and conquers all of those and we think we think to ourselves well i'm just such an ordinary person i am such a i'm such a vanilla type human being i'm just your basic generic christian what could i do to stand up against a force that's so evil so powerful that literally it can perform false signs uh well let me tell you that's also kind of the point of of tolkien that's his whole point for hobbits uh, Tolkien's point is that history is not improved and the great events of history are not determined by the great men of history so much as just the common, ordinary, small people. You actually are, you cause the devil to tremble because of what it means for the common people of God to be able to stand up against such evil. So, so take courage, hobbits. <laughs> we will end up winning the day. We will end up winning day and, and casting the ring into the abyss or whatever we're supposed to do. Okay, took it too far that time, that's for sure. So he disguised himself as an angel of light. And he goes on to say here in verse uh, 5 through 7 what, that tells us what restrains him until the day of the Lord. Now, this is one of those things that the Thessalonians 
perfectly understood what Paul was talking about, but we are somewhat confused. So we have to deduce some of these ideas. He says here, do you not remember? He's kind of rebuking them a little bit because they are quickly shaken from their composure. They're disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter from us uh, that the Lord's day has come. And he's, and he's going back and said, listen, you shouldn't be upset. You shouldn't be anxious. You shouldn't be depressed. You shouldn't think that you've been left behind. Go back to the Bible studies we had in Thessalonica and remember what I told you, this is a, this is the the groan of a pastor. You know, this is the groan of a. You've already forgotten. It's just been a few months. You've already forgotten here. And he says, and you know what restrains him now, so that the time he may be revealed. So the Thessalonians understood exactly what it was, who it was that was restraining this force of Antichrist that's going to come at the end. But we don't. He didn't define it here. Again, why didn't Paul define here? Because he's not about a theological lesson. He is being pastoral. He is trying to comfort them in the midst of their affliction, and he makes some assumptions about the theology that they already know. But we can deduce some, some basic things here. So basically, notice this, that there's a force here. Uh, he, he says that I'm telling you these things for the mystery of lawlessness has already worked. That idea of mystery is a, is a long-kept secret that's being revealed. And we're seeing that it's being revealed even as we live here, that lawlessness is already a work. Would you, would you amen to that? Uh, have you read the headlines lately? Uh, you probably avoid the headlines because it seems like they just seem to be consumed with this principle of lawlessness. Am I right? Um, John, John says this uh, in 1 John 4, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. So all those people who oppose the doctrine of this, of this church, now they could be Christians that are opposing the doctrine of the church, we understand. Uh, there is a big, big tent aspect to Christianity and evangelicalism. We, we get that. But by, by and large, those who oppose the deity of Christ, oppose the Apostles' Creed, oppose the great teachings of Scripture, that's the spirit of Antichrist. Now, if you get in an argument with Uncle Sid over Thanksgiving, don't call him an Antichrist. Let me just give you a tip here. That's not going to go over well with Uncle Sid. But that spirit is the spirit of Antichrist. He's in constant opposition even now. So it's just going to be more of this same thing. He says, which the spirit of Antichrist, which you said is Kerman, and he says, and is already in the world. The mystery will prevail and will continue and it will continue to grow. This is one reason why I am not a post-millennial uh, believer in, uh, in eschatology. I'm an amillennial. I believe that we're in the millennial kingdom right now. I admire post-millennials. A lot of my heroes were post-millennials. Uh, and I wish I was one because they're just so stinking optimistic. But, uh, uh, but I just can't be that optimistic uh, about where the world is heading. Uh, John Stott says this, his, the Antichrist's anti-social, anti-law, anti-God movement is at presently largely underground. We detect its subversive, subversive influence around us today. In the atheistic stance of secular humanism and the totalitarian tendencies of extreme left and right ideologies, in the materialism of our consumer Society, which puts things in the place of God, and the so-called theologies, which proclaim the death of God and the end of moral absolutes, and in the social permissiveness, with, which cheapens the sanctity of human life, sex, marriage, family, and all of which uh, God created or instituted. 
we had evidently there's a been a little bit of wager amongst some of our people that whenever I read an epic quote that I'm going to start getting emotional and teary eyed. Uh, and and it's it's true. When I read epic quotes, I get emotion. I'm a, I'm amazed. I made it through the Navy hymn, having a son that served in the Navy. I used to get, just lose it every time we sang that hymn, so we couldn't sing it for a couple of years. But I do get. And part of it is because I so long for the noble. I so long for for courage, and chastity, and love, and and things things that are good and right and honorable and clean. And in our culture, those things are the very things that are attacked. Those things that got us to where we are are the things that are mostly insulted. Folks, let me tell you, illustrations are not hard to find about this idea that the principle of lawlessness is already at work. Just the last few weeks, right, this principle that the, the, the uh, nation was founded upon, which was a Reformation principle, the principle of rule of law, that you obey the laws... Unless you rewrite them, you are bound to obey those laws. That's just being thrown out with everything else that's good and noble and pure and clean. Uh, for instance, the drug cartels are running the border right now. This is not a secret. This is not, this is not politics. They run the border right now. They decide who comes in, who goes in. And yet the government's hiring a bunch of extra IRS agents to go after you. The district attorney of Manhattan says that he is no longer going to uh, go after criminals in order to establish racial equity. So if you're a thief, you can just get away with it. Shoplifting in New York, something like uh, a third of all of the shoplifting uh, is cur uh, done by the same 327 people who've been arrested and rearrested some 6,000 times. Maybe you should keep them in jail. Uh, the Secretary of, uh, of the Treasury suggested that the be best way we could improve the economy is to get an abortion. As one commentator says, that's Aztec theology. That's child sacrifice. That's not politics. And, of course, you see the corruption. Corruption time and time again, and yet the corrupt never seem to go to jail, do they? We have made crime a civil right in our nation. And it's terrifying to see it. And it's terrifying to see how fast it's happened. Now, the downside of this kind of thing is we don't want to be a bunch of grumpy old complaining people. Okay? We can kind of tend towards that. We can also begin to get despaired. But y'all, none of this has snuck up on God. And the advantage of this is the, 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 the clarity between dark and light is becoming even easier to see than it ever has been. And God will be able to demonstrate more and more whose people he really loves and who are those who are in opposition uh, to the church. And there's always been evil rulers, right? There have been countless generations of Christians who have thought that the Antichrist surely must have been uh, uh, one of the uh, Roman Caesars, Attila the Hun, Muhammad and the Muslim invasions, the various popes, the Spanish Inquisition. Or, of course, if you're a Catholic, you think the Antichrist is Martin Luther. Um, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, all the wars in the Middle East. I and mean, there's just no end to the number of potential antichrists. But as evil as a Hitler is, as evil as a Stalin was, as evil as a Mao, that's child's play. They're kindergartners compared to the, the, the type of antichrist that is to come. 
But he says here, now he who restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the question is, is who is actually restraining him? What is this force? And what's complicated about this is that the, the restraining force is considered a he. It's per- personified and a that. Okay, uh, It's a thing. It's, a, it, it's an entity. So here's, here's some of the options that commentators are coming up with. God or the Holy Spirit. But the problem with God and the Holy Spirit, they can't be taken out of the way. Right? Another option is church and the spreading of the gospel. For instance, Matthew 24 says, And this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached into the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Okay, so all these references to the, the, fulling of, the fulfilling of the Gentiles uh, has come in Luke chapter 21 and Romans chapter 11. Some people think maybe it's Michael the archangel. They have a, a good verse for that, Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed over it so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. And after that, he must be released for a short time. But an angel can't be both a he and the that. Some commentators seem to think one of the best options would be the human law codes or government. That it's this idea of rule of law that actually restrains him. Uh, And uh, this was the idea of Tertullian, that the obstacle was the Roman state. uh, Because uh, uh, laws are an it, but also the law keepers, the judges, the politicians, the the lawmakers are are he. So maybe it's this principle of law that's keeping this thing restrained. And when that principle is removed, when the government is is the encourager of evil instead of good then that principle might be removed. So which one is it? Ask Jack. I don't know. <laughs> All these RTS students that are going off the heart, maybe they can get back and give us a little report or something like that. Uh, but you know what? It, in some ways, it kind of doesn't matter because who ultimately is it? Well, it's God. It's God, right? Paul says that if it is the government, for instance, Romans chapter 13, that the government is a, is a tool for God's good, for good good of of mankind here so here here, kind of we kind of this is the downside of these kinds of things is i don't want to lose the 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 sermon through a lecture but there is some content that you need to understand but i've given it to you in the back of the bulletin this next little piece here so part of this has to do with the way you view eschatology the way you view the theology of the end times here and there's four big options here that very briefly I want to go to. Again, this isn't a lecture, but I do think you ought to understand these principles because it will help you when you read Revelation. It will help you when you read Matthew 24. The first is preterism. Preterism, of course, is the view that it means past, that, that is those uh, Matthew 24 verses and a lot of the other ones, they were all fulfilled uh, during the time of Nero's persecution of the church and the, and the destruction of Jerusalem. These things have happened in the past, okay? Uh, you also see the historist approach. That's the characterize the entire period between Christ, the first and second coming of Christ. Uh, that basically this is the, the days of difficulty will come, as we see in Second uh, Timothy. Uh, this idea that we are in the last hour is a historist view, of course. Then you have the futurist approach. That all of these events that you read about here, they're going to take place in the future, immediately preceding the coming of Christ. The problem with those three big approaches is that they they kind of miss out on some of the opportunities. 
So really, the, the, the approach that I tend to embrace is this idealist approach that basically sees the prophetic signs as having a first century fulfillment. When Jesus said that a bank would be set up against you and you should flee to the mountains, early Christians actually did flee the mountains and they were saved. And the Romans actually did put up a bank against them, you know, and, they, and, and besieged Jerusalem. So that, that did happen. There's also this principle of wickedness that is going on, that has been in a historist kind of view. That's legitimate, as is the futurist uh, view. Some of these things are not going to happen till the, to the uh, return of Christ. So I like this idealist approach that kind of combines all of those. It recognizes that different prophecies have different fulfillments. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's, a, that's a, an enlightened way to approach it, but I think that's a way that can help kind of clear through some of this clutter here. William Henderson kind of summarizes this whole this whole. Uh, passage here with these thoughts. According to sense of the entire passage of verses 6 and 7 seems to be this. Satan, while perfectly aware of the fact that he cannot himself become incarnate, nevertheless would like to uh, imitate the second person of the Trinity also in this respect as far as possible. He yearns for a man whom he will have complete control, who will perform his will as thoroughly as Jesus performed the will of the Father. I will, uh, it will have to be a man of outstanding talents, but as yet the devil is being frustrated in his attempt to put the plan into operation. Someone and something is always holding back the deceiver's man of lawlessness. This, of course, happens under God's direction. Hence, for the time being, the worst Satan can do is promote the spirit of lawlessness. But this does not satisfy him. Uh, it is in he and th this man of sin abide their time. At the divinely decreed moment, the appropriate season, when, all, when as a punishment for man's wickedness to cooperate with the spirit, the someone and the something that holds him back is removed, Satan will begin to carry out his plans. So what do you do? What do you do? You resist. You fight back. Now, you could go run for office. You could go try to be the... The, the head of the Presbytery or, or Senate or whatever it might be. Uh, you could try to be a senator. You could try to be a congressman. You know, but really, it, it's your basic crawling towards obedience and every day being more, made more and more in the image of Christ is the thing that will fight him the most. When you grumble, when you lust, when you complain, when you're slothful, you delight Satan and you grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. You are to delight the Holy Spirit and grieve Satan. And that's how we fight back against this thing. And that's how Christians have been fighting back against this thing for some 2,000 years. So in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you know that orcs uh, are counterfeit, evil counterfeits of of uh, elves, you know that trolls are evil counterfeits to the ints. So Satan, who cannot become incarnate himself, will possess a man of incredible intelligence, wicked drive, unparalleled talent to be a counterfeit incarnation. It's a dark Christmas substitute that he is seeking to follow. And the passage goes on to tell us, though, and we should be encouraged by this in verse 8, that this reign will be very short-lived. For the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearance of his coming. And then, when he comes back, we will have to fight no more. And, and evil may not even be a memory for us at that time. 
dwell on these things. Father, in faith, we turn to you, Lord, and we thank you, God, that uh, the, the, the darkness that surrounds us and the darkness that is to come is a good test of our faith. Help us to not be presumptive and just assume obedience. Help us to, to make every moment count as we seek to be prepared for the evil that's around us now and the evil to come because following all of that is good that is so good that we cannot even imagine it. Bless us now and help us to know as a church what it is that we can do to win the battle, to win the battle and to welcome back our Christ. In Christ's name, amen.